please turn to uh, Galatians chapter 4. The next step in our um, verse-by-verse walk through Paul's letter to the Galatians is going to be on in chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Now, in today's text, as we continue to walk through Galatians, the Apostle Paul is kind of looking back. And there's some things that the Apostle Paul does not want the Galatians to go back to. But then he's also looking back, and there are some things he wants them to return to. So that's why I entitled the message, Don't Go Back, But Do Go Back. So I got to thinking about that. I think we can all relate to things in our life that we, well, we don't want to go back to. I just don't want to go back to that. And... Um, there are things that perhaps in our life that fond memories. Oh, if we could just go and do that or have that once again. So um, with the help of some wives in here, there's some, some un- unsuspecting husbands in here. I, I asked for some, some pictures of perhaps some things that, well, maybe your, your husbands don't want to go back to. All right, here's, here's um, Jeff here. Um, uh, it's a nice, stunning picture, Jeff, but I wouldn't go back to the... To the thing on the top of the head there. Nice suit and all that, but I just wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to that. Now, that may be a great time in your life. I have no idea. Senior picture or something, maybe a great memories, but, but just don't go back to the hair thing, all right? How, how about this next one here? All right, Mr. Steve Baptista, that shirt, I just wouldn't go back to that. You know, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on there with the shirt and the pants and the combination, um, but. Um, I'm sure that's some sort of fond memory from your life that, that you remember well, and you want to, you remember that and would love to go back to that, but please, don't, don't go back to the, the, that, that outfit, all right? Or here's my favorite one. All right, Mr. Um, uh, Matt back there. Um, Matt, um, I, I really don't even know what to say. I'm actually not sure you got that tank top off the right aisle. <laughs> and the hat's really not doing it either. Um, Matt, don't go back to that. We are all pleading with you. Don't go back. Now, I know you're there. You're hanging out with some football buddies. I'm sure that was a, a fond memories to go back to. But that right there, no, no. All right, I'm going to spare you any more. There's no more here this morning. So you can go ahead and bring up our title slide again. Now, that's silly, right? But I think about what we, looking in our rearview mirror, some things we, we desperately don't want to go back to, and some things that, well, oh boy, that would be nice to go back to that. And so the Apostle Paul here, I see the text breaking down into two parts. The Apostle Paul here in verses 8 through 11, he looks in the rearview mirror of time to remind the Galatians of something he does not want them to return back to, namely... Works-based religion. But then in verses 12 through 20, he looks in the rearview mirror of time to remind the Galatians of something he does want them to return back to. Namely, gospel-driven, mutually edifying love that they once had for one another. So please stand with me now as we look at this passage of Scripture. We look at what Paul pleads with them not to go back to and what he's hoping that they will return to. So Galatians chapter 4, beginning of verse 8, we're going to read through verse 20. We stand because we believe 
that these words here that Paul is speaking to the Galatian church apply to us as well because this is God's living and abiding, eternal, all-sufficient word. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Father, we ask you as we come to this passage of Scripture today that you would do a work on our hearts Lord, if there is any way that anybody in this room is trying to go back to a reliance upon themselves and what they can do and trying to merit or earn anything from you, then, Father, I pray that you would let this text help them and help me, if it be me, if it be any of us in here, help us slay the sin of man-centered works righteousness. And Father, I also pray that as we look at the final portion of today's passage, that we would see a brotherly love there that should be a model for our church. So God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. We know your word always communicates accurately exactly what you want it to say. So we pray that you give us ears to hear it rightly and give me a mouth to speak it correctly and boldly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now up to this point in this letter to the Galatians, Paul has been pretty stern and confrontational. If you'll recall, his greeting to them was, in comparison to the other epistles he wrote, unusually short, terse, and to the point. And the reason was the issue at hand was an urgent issue. The issue was the Galatians understanding of the gospel itself was at stake. So Paul minces no words. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Paul was shocked that the churches in Galatia, whom he and Barnabas had planted just a couple of years earlier, were shifting from the gospel and thus were deserting Christ. And why was this happening? It was happening because false teachers had infiltrated the Galatian churches teaching them they needed to, to add something to their belief in Jesus. So belief in Jesus was good, but they needed to add something. They need, namely, they needed to add circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic Law. 
And Paul knew that this half gospel was in reality no gospel at all. So without any concern for political correctness, he says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, let them be accursed. Paul was so exasperated by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 1, that he calls the people to whom he's writing foolish Galatians. And almost frustratingly, he asks this question, who is it that has bewitched you? Now, the theological thesis of this whole letter is found in chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul plainly states that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he uses the Old Testament scriptures to defend this theological truth, including Genesis 15, where he shows that Abraham believed he had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, meaning he was justified, declared not guilty by faith alone. And Paul's point was that Abraham's justification came before circumcision and centuries before the giving of the law to Israel. Thus, salvation cannot come by those means or by any works carried out by any man in the flesh, but only by faith. And then Paul, to the shock of some of his hearers, in no uncertain terms, says that everyone who has faith, whether they be Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, everyone who has faith, as Abraham had, is a recipient of all of God's blessings, is a member of God's people, is a son of Abraham, and is thus a son of God. Now, at this point, I want to correct something that I said last week in this kind of portion of the sermon where I was recapping. Uh, I went off notes a little bit, and I said something that wasn't correct, an error that I made. And I want to, uh, it was inadvertent, but I want to fix that this morning. In that recap, I said that there was only one offspring of Abraham, and that's not what I meant to say. That's not true. There were many offspring of Abraham. What I meant to say is that according to the uh, covenantal promises, that the, that the covenantal promises were only made to Abraham and his one offspring, Jesus Christ. So that's what I was meaning to say. See, Jesus came as the only obedient, perfectly obedient, I should say, law-keeping Jew, the only true son of God, and thus he himself was the fulfillment of the law, and therefore he was himself the recipient of the promises. And thus all who are united to him by faith are counted as offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Now the question though, as Paul is explaining all this, is well, why, why then the law? Why, why is the law even there? Why was it given to Israel? Well, we saw that the law was not designed to save, but to point people to the Savior, Jesus. The law was like a prison guard pointing out that our slavery to our own sin is our problem, and we need an emancipator. The law was like a strict guardian showing us that um, we need to be adopted by a father. And so up to this point, Paul has been quite stern. The tone of his letter has been very much like an angry parent. But it takes a little bit of a shift in today's text. And we see that Paul's admonishment of the Galatians is accompanied by pastoral affection. He is direct yet tender he loves the people of these churches. And so Paul, with the heart of a parent in the faith, is earnestly pleading with them. So Paul pleads with the Galatians, and here's the first thing. Paul pleads with, with the Galatians to not go back to the self-focused works that they had hoped in before they embraced the authentic gospel. Paul pleads with the Galatians, first of all, to not go back to the self-focused works that they had hoped in before they embraced the authentic gospel. Verse 8. 
Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So Paul, once again, as he's already done in this, in this letter to the Galatians, reminds them that apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, they used to be enslaved. He reminds the Galatians that they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then just a little bit later, he says, how can you turn back to the weak and elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So we see that these two enslavements are synonymous. Enslavement to the worthless principles, elementary principles of the world is the same thing in Paul's mind as enslavement uh, to those that by nature are not gods, which seems to be a reference to pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry that the Gentile Galatians would have formerly practiced. Now, if you recall, we've already seen that phrase, the elementary principles of the world. We saw it just a few verses earlier in verse 3. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But we saw in that context that the elementary principles of the world were synonymous with the Mosaic law. So which is it? Are the elementary principles of the world the law? Or is it referring to pagan practices? Well, I discussed this at length last week. But Paul is using the word in two different contexts here, making them synonymous. Basically, this would be highly insulting to the Jewish believers in the Galatian church to actually associate the Mosaic law now with pagan practices. But he's putting them both in the same boat because here's, what he's trying, here's the point I think that Paul is trying to make. That to revert back to any form of reliance upon one's own works is to revert back to the slavery of unbelief. The Jews had missed the purpose of the law and trusted in their own ability to keep it. And trusted in their own ability to save themselves by the keeping of the law. The Gentiles, who had the works of the law written on the heart, suppressed the truth and thus sought their own salvation through idolatry. Both are the seeking of a false god to save them, and both are worthless. Remember, there are only two ways to live. There is the way that looks to God in faith alone, and there is the way that looks to what we can do. All false religions, all false worldviews, and all understandings of the Mosaic law that don't lead to Christ, and all versions of Christianity that add any kind of works to faith in Christ are in the same boat. They are all means by which man tries to do something to be right with God or do something to save himself. They all bow to the sinful, prideful idol of the human heart of human autonomy. They are all worthless. They are all enslaving. This is the slavery all men find themselves in, religious or non-religious, male, female, Jew, Gentile, until they come to truly know God according to the only means by which he can be known, through Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Now the word know here is more than intellectual knowledge. It's the word for intimate knowledge. A word often used in the scriptures to refer to the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. So here, in referring to uh, our relationship with God, it's referring to a deep, true, loving relationship between God and man. A relationship that can only come about by faith in Christ. It almost as if he's sort of catching himself here. Paul restates this truth in a manner as to make sure we understand that our relationship with God 
is not initiated by us. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. He doesn't want us to get the wrong impression about how we came into this relationship with God. He removes any idea in the reader's minds that our relationship with God is anything of our doing. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the point Paul is trying to make is simply this. Are you really wanting to go back to the former way of living, the way of life where you were enslaved to fake gods, to a time when you had no relationship to the one true God? Now that you are in a deep and abiding relationship with God, how on earth could you possibly go back? How on earth? Like the newly freed Israelites in Exodus who desired to do a U-turn and head back to Egypt, these newly freed Galatians were being tempted to head back to a false worship. Now we already know from this letter about the the temptations that were being put before them, temptations to put their hope in circumcision, temptations to put their hope in the keeping of the Mosaic law. But it manifests itself here in in another way in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now both the Jews and the Gentiles had special days and months and seasons that they observed ritualistically. I mean, that's just part of human culture. We, We have that today. We have days that we observe. But a lot of times, both the Jews and the Gentiles would put superstitious meaning into the the observance of those days. Now the days and the months and the seasons and the years that the Judaizers are trying to entrap the Galatians in are the prescribed Jewish feasts, festivals, and special days laid out in God's law. The problem is, as with all the law, okay, the, the problem wasn't necessarily with the days and the festivals themselves but the hope that the Jews were putting in the observance of those days and festivals to make them right with God. The Judaizers failed to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law, including the special days. It all pointed to, foreshadowed him. And thus, upon his arrival, the special days, months, seasons, and years had served their purpose and thus were needed no more. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are, listen to this, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul is essentially saying, why fall in love with Jesus' shadow when you can have the real thing? Could you imagine being at your your men in here who are married, could you imagine being at your wedding and staring at your beautiful, beautiful bride's beautiful shadow and desiring the shadow? You don't want the shadow. You want your bride. Now you may say, well, I'm glad that glad we're not faced with those issues today. We understand the, the old covenant that we're freed from these, these days and these years. But it seems to me that a lot of believers today have simply replaced the old Jewish shadows with new systems, new days, new rituals, new rules to make us feel more spiritual. Legalism, relying on one's own ability to keep rules in order to either know God or even to get closer to God, is to put hope in worthless elementary principles of the world. 
And it's always a danger in the church. So let me just give some examples. First, let's just think about Easter and Christmas. You have your Easter and Christmas only folks, right? Who apparently have put a certain amount, if not all, of their hope in being right with God in the fact that they can come to church on those two days. That's putting hope in a specific day. Now, I don't think that's our problem for, for anyone in this room. It's not Easter, it's not Christmas, so I doubt any of those folks are here today. So, so put on your steel-toed boots for a second here. Let me, let me talk about Lent. Did you observe Lent this year? Now, do you know what Lent is? Do you know what the Reformers thought about Lent? Look it up. Now, Lent was born out of the Catholic Church's own system of worthless elementary principles that they imposed upon God's people. Now, let me say legalism is a double-edged sword. Okay, now listen closely. You can be legalistic about observing Lent, and you can be legalistic about not observing Lent. There are a myriad of ways, friends, for us to be puffed up with legalistic pride. Now, if observance of Lent is a good way for you to practice self-discipline and focus on God, but you're not putting any hope in that observance itself, that it earns you any sort of favor or better relationship with God, then that's fine, but just be very careful. And the one who is tempted to judge the Lent observer, be careful, lest you think that your non-observance of Lent makes you more spiritual and thus closer to God. The point is simple. Neither the observance of Lent nor the non-observance of Lent does anything to merit anyone favor with God, period. Jesus is the only one who can merit any favor with a holy God. And thus the only one to whom you should look. The only one in whom you should put any hope. Now this double-edged sword applies to a bunch of other things. Things related to Easter, things related to Christmas... Things related to music styles and worship. Things related to education choices for our children. Now let me pause here for a second because every time I bring up homeschooling from the pulpit, almost every time, I'll get one or two folks out there and say, hey, listen, are you, are, you, are you guys an issue with homeschooling? Are you frustrated with homeschoolers or whatever? No, my, my issue is simply this. I've been around enough homeschoolers to know too many of them put their hope in homeschooling instead of Christ. It's a very easy thing for people to get hung up on and put their hope in if I just educate my child this way yes only for the child to grow up and reject the Lord and they wonder what happened because the hope wasn't in the right place and so this double-edged sword applies to a lot of things because it can go both ways I know the the fear that resides in the heart of all legalists and by the way we are all legalists to one degree or another we always have to fight this sin but, but the, the fear is that people will fall into licentiousness and loose uh, non-lordship living. But not if we follow the Apostle Paul into what he has to say. If you follow the Apostle Paul and continue in Ephesians 5, you'll see that our freedom is not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to live by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we'll get there. We've got to deal with this idol first. Now, Deemer will take over when we get to Ephesians 5. And I'm looking forward to, to allowing those texts to pierce our heart. So live by the Spirit. Aim for a clear conscience. Be careful not to do spiritual harm to others. And live free. Free to honor Christ in all you do. 
But enough of my babbling. Let me just allow the Apostle Paul to speak the authoritative word on this. Romans 14, 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us, listen to this, lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So the heart of Paul's concern wasn't the observance of these days, seasons, months, and years. No, the heart of his concern was that these Galatians had begun to put their hope in these things. And thus were trying to complete in the flesh what Christ had begun in the Spirit. And so Paul says in verse 11, I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. The Greek word for labored here connotes the idea of physical exhaustion. What we have here is the heart of a man who has toiled hard for these people, but is afraid that he has worn himself out for nothing. This message came alive to me in a very real way this week. For just a couple of days ago, word came to me of a young man from a previous time in my own ministry, a young man who I spent hours discipling, a young man who I walked with through many ethical, theological, and personal issues, a young man who was at one time zealous for the gospel, but he's now begun to embrace a very man-centered, works-based system of Christianity that is in my mind, very much a clear departure from the authentic gospel. And I'm wondering if all that time spent with him was in vain. And if I get a chance, I will plead with this young man the same thing that Paul pled with the young Galatian churches. Do not go back to the self-focused works that you had hoped in before you embraced the authentic gospel. So Paul is saying, don't go back. But now he's going to remind them of something he does want them to go back to. He pleads with them next to go back to the other focused love that they had carried out when they embraced the authentic gospel. The other focused, outward focused love that they had carried out when they embraced the authentic gospel. In verse 12, we see Paul enter into a very personal, highly affectionate portion of this letter to the Galatians. Verse 12, brothers. Now that word alone, brothers. He's saying something there. He has deep Love for them. He knows he's calling them brothers. He's also saying by calling them brothers that he does not believe they've fallen away from the faith. He does not believe they have proven themselves to be unbelievers. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And what does Paul mean by this? I think this is a way of him calling them back to the freedom of the gospel. He, though a Jew had no problem becoming as they were, eating with them, fellowshipping with them. Now remember, Peter had a problem with it, but not Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And so the great irony is that though he had become as one outside the law in order to win them to Christ, 
They now were trying to become as those under the law in order to win favor with God. Paul pleads with them to remember their freedom that he had and the freedom he had when he came and he preached the gospel to them. And next he's going to remind them of the great love they showed to him, a love that flowed out of their receiving of the gospel, the gospel of free grace, continuing in verse 12. You did me no wrong. As opposed, to, as opposed to what they're doing now, back then, they showed great love to Paul as evidenced by the personal trial he was going through when he came to them. Verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now first notice the sovereign goodness of God. It was because of a bodily ailment that Paul preached the gospel to them. Now, we don't know with absolute certainty what this bodily ailment was. I tend to lean towards the theory that Paul had some sort of eye condition, probably something called uh, ophthalmia, if I'm saying that correctly, which is a painful inflammation of the eyes that can be very debilitating, and it could even cause one's appearance to be a bit unnerving. But in reality, we don't know all the details of the physical ailment or of all the circumstances surrounding it, but it really doesn't matter. We do know that whatever the ailment was, it was at least part of the reason that Paul and Barnabas stopped and preached the gospel in Galatia. We need to see that Paul saw his illness as a tool in the hands of a sovereign God. Let me say that again. Paul saw his illness as a tool in the hands of of a sovereign God. If Paul were writing a blog today, he'd probably write a blog post titled, Don't Waste Your Ophthalmia. Now this should be an encouragement to those of you in here who are going through various ailments and trials. Let it be an encouragement to you that God has good and gospel purposes behind each difficulty that he has providentially allowed to invade the life of his children. And so we see in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, verses 7 through 10, that Paul speaks of a thorn in his flesh, which is probably the same thing. A thorn in his flesh, and he said it was given to him so that, that Christ's power would be made perfect in his weakness. So Paul goes on to say that this condition was a trial to them. So both the Jews and the Gentiles during that time viewed physical ailments, especially ones that were so outwardly evident, to be signs that one was cursed by God or the God's. Yet despite his gross appearance, they didn't scorn or despise him, but received him. They loved him. They accepted him as if he were an angel of God. More than that, as if he were Christ Jesus himself. This is what the gospel produces. Genuine love and acceptance of one another. And due to, their, to our union with Christ, when we lovingly receive one another, we are indeed receiving Christ. Matthew 10 Verse 40 says that whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The gospel produces love. The love of Christ in us, through us, joining us together in the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4, 3 speaks of. I read John 4, 10 earlier. Let me read the verses that follow. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So Paul pleads with them to return to the gospel and thus return to their former love. 
His words here remind me of Jesus' words to the, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verse 4, where he, he wants them to return to the love they once had. They had abandoned the love that they had had at first. So faith in the authentic gospel produces love, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, why does the gospel produce love? Because it removes the idol of me. Why does the gospel produce love? It removes the idol of me. You cannot be other-focused, outward-driven, if your salvation and your sanctification is all about you. Legalism, in other words, kills love. Legalism kills love. And then Paul says this in verse 15, What then has become of your blessedness? Now, blessedness is another form of the word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. And it roughly translates to happiness. And it refers to Christian joy. It was their joy. It was their happiness. Their blessedness to receive Paul with love. But now it's gone. So we see that legalism not only kills love, it also kills joy. The full, robust, blessedness, joy of the Christian walk cannot be sustained by rule keeping. It may produce some sort of self-centered satisfaction, but it cannot produce deep and abiding joy. In that Romans 14 passage where Paul speaks of our gospel freedom, he says this in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, there's the rules, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now there's the role of the Holy Spirit again. And we'll see that play out as we continue in the book of Galatians. Verse 15. For, for, so now he's going to show the evidence of their blessedness. For, I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now Paul could have just been using a metaphor here. But I think this text is, I, this text is one of the reasons that I think that this affliction of his had something to do with his eyes. They loved him so much that they would happily, joyfully, joyfully take his affliction upon themselves in service to him. So we see that love, we see love that, that, that comes from the gospel. It overflows into joy, which is evidenced by sacrificial service. But apparently those days are gone. They're in the past. So we see that legalism kills love, kills joy, and it kills service to others. The legalist has no desire to build up his brother. Only the one guided by the Spirit can confront actual sin in a brother's life with love in order to build him up. The legalist cannot build up the brother. So Paul is remembering the mutual love, the overflow of joy, the sacrificial service to one another. But then in verse 16, his mind sort of snaps back to the reality of the present situation. He says this, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? The poisonous teachings of the Judaizers had turned the Galatians against Paul. But why are they against him? They're against him because he's standing on the gospel. He's preaching the same truth he preached to them at the beginning. The truth has a great way of exposing hearts and creating enemies. You hear the pastoral pain of Paul here. Any evangelist, any pastor, any teacher of the scripture will tell you that the preaching and the teaching of the truth and standing on it without apology will create enemies. 
Perhaps the thought of this is now making Paul begin to think about the false teachers who had who'd stirred up all of this in the first place. So now he seems to turn his attention to them in verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. Now make much of is only one word in the Greek, and it's translated in, in most places in the scripture as jealous or zealous. The false teachers were, were zealous for the Galatians. They, may, they make much of you, but their zeal was for no good purpose, meaning it wasn't for the Galatians' good. Their zeal wasn't born out of love for the Galatians, but in reality it was merely a means to love themselves. Look at the second half of verse 17. They shut you out that you may, may make much of them. Their zeal is really a self-centered zeal. Their selfish aim was for the Galatians to be zealous for them. They wanted the glory that came from the applause and admiration of men. And this is in direct opposition to faith. John 5, our Lord Jesus says, How can you believe, that is have faith, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They did not love the Galatians. Instead, they were using the Galatians. And ultimately, they wanted to shut them out. Meaning they wanted to cut them off from the, the, the larger fellowship of Christians, especially the ministry of Paul. Ultimately, if the Galatians give in, they'll find themselves shut out from Christ. Now, legalistic teaching shuts people out. It comes along and says, do this, don't do this, so that you can be right with God, or so that you can have a higher spiritual walk, or so that you can know God better. And legalism forbids one from fellowshipping with anyone who fails to keep the same list of do's and don'ts in the process, shuts people out from the broader Christian fellowship. In other words, legalism operates the way cults operate. And all cults, like all false religions, are built on legalism. Legalism takes the theological triage that I talk about all the time. Legalism takes the, the theological triage and turns it on its head. And instead of there being a relatively small amount of things one must absolutely believe by faith in order to be considered a brother in Christ, it takes tertiary and sometimes secondary issues, elevates them, cuts off the spiritually lesser ones, and thereby cuts away people from the broader fellowship of the believers. Oh, friends, the danger of legalism is a nefarious lion crouching in the corner of every church. And it's a nefarious lion crouching in the corner of every Christian's heart. For until we are freed from these bodies of death, we will always struggle with legalism to one degree or another. Let's continue in verse 18. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. So he, he says, it's okay for us to have zeal for one another, so long as it's for good, meaning gospel, purposes. Listen, friends, we should, listen to this, we should be zealous about each other's holiness and Christ-likeness. We should be zealous about that. Okay, we see this very thing with Paul in the very next verse. But we must guard against thinking that the means for attaining that holiness is found somehow in rules and regulations, which are actual, in actuality nothing more than worthless principles, elementary principles of the world. So Paul goes on to say in verse 18, and not only when I am present with you, Paul is simply saying that true Christian zeal, like the zeal he has for them, is not only good, it's also continuous. Paul's heart was always beating for the churches. He was always zealous for their growth in the gospel, even when he wasn't with them. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Paul speaks of the daily pressure on him and his anxiety for all the churches. 
One of the ways you can measure whether or not your concern for a brother is based on legalism or if it's based on love, and, and it's hard to discern sometimes, but one of the ways you can measure whether or not your concern for your brother is based on legalism or love would be a test like this. Is it something, whatever they're involved in, that bothers you just when you see them, just when you're in their presence? Well, then it, that could indicate selfish or self-aggrandizing motives. Or does the Spirit put a continual concern in your heart for them and anxiety for them to grow in Christ? For Paul, it's very clear. His zeal for the Galatians is not resting on legalism, but it's on the, the fruit of a true and deep love that he has for the church. And we see that in his very next words, verse 19. My little children. Paul now speaks with the most affectionate words he has spoken to them yet, thus far, in this letter. No longer is he using the word children in a critical way to refer to their spiritual immaturity, but he's using the word as a term of endearment. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. This is birth pains. Okay, Paul is comparing the anguish he feels regarding their spiritual growth to the pain of a, woman, a woman's labor. This isn't the only time Paul uses motherly language to talk about his pastoral concerns. First Thessalonians 2, 7 he compares himself to a nursing mother taking care of her children. But you can see why he's exhausted. He feels as if he's having to do this all over again. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. So mom's in here. Imagine the doctor saying, congratulations, mom. He's an eight-pound, eight-ounce boy. And we're going to put him back in. You've got to do it all over again. Paul, poor Paul, he feels as if he's having to again go through the anguish, childbirth. Verse 19, until Christ is formed in you. Now formed is the Greek word used to refer to the development of a baby in the womb. So we see that Paul is doing something very interesting here. He's intentionally sort of reordering or mixing up the metaphor. Look at the progress. They are already children, yet he's still giving birth to them. And in reality, they are pregnant, pregnant with Christ. The image here is that our union with Christ, okay, even though it's real and it's certain, it's still, there's an aspect of it that's still progressive, ongoing, and growing. There's a growing reality of Christ in us. That's what sanctification is. Christ being formed in us as a baby is formed in a mother's womb, Romans 8, 29. It says this, we are being conformed to the image of the Son. Progressive sanctification Paul was anxiously laboring for Christ to be formed in these Galatians. So notice the difference between him and the false teachers. The Judaizers want the Galatians to boast about them. But Paul's aim is for the Galatians to boast about Christ. So Paul will say uh, later on in this letter, chapter 6, verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul pleads with the Galatians to not go back to the self-focused works that they had hoped in before they embraced the authentic gospel, but to go back to the other focused love that they had carried out when they embraced the true gospel. And he concludes with these words, verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul's desire is to be with them, to see if they are receiving his loving rebuke the way he intends it to be received, to see if they're responding by rejecting the false gospel that the Judaizers were peddling. He wants to change his tone. Friends, it's, it's no fun to rebuke. 
But Paul has deep pastoral love and boldness, a model for all pastors to try to follow. And he speaks the truth in love. But until he can be with them again to see their response, he's perplexed. Meaning, he's just, he's at a loss. He's at a loss for what's going on in the Galatian church. Oh, Christian, as we come now this morning to the table, we come to remember the blood that was shed, the body that was broken, the blood and the body given by our Lord to purchase you, to ransom you, to redeem you from slavery. Slavery to sin and slavery to the vain works of the law. You have been freed, freed to live for Christ by his spirit, free to have a deep and abiding love, free to experience true joy, free to sacrificially serve, free to live in holiness. And the table represents this mutual fellowship as well, this love for one another, this joy, this sacrificial service, because it is a table. We come to it together. And so let the word stir up deep reverence and awe for us this morning as we come to the table. And for the unbeliever here this morning, you who have never repented of your sin, you've never turned to Christ alone for your salvation, you who have never understood and embraced by faith that Christ died to take God's wrath against sinners on the cross and that he lived a perfect life so that he, his perfect life could be credited to sinners by faith, I urge you not to just come up to the table this morning, but instead where you are at, because if you come to the table and you're not a believer, then you're, you're living a lie. But where you're at, pray. Ask God to break your heart. Turn from your sin. Turn from your vain attempts to merit God's favor. And turn to Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table now, I do pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts. Not just the unbelievers that I spoke to here a second ago, but all of us. May we examine our hearts and ask if we have the love, that, that overflowing, bubbling love and joy and sacrificial service that we first had when we first came to Christ, when we first came to believe the gospel. And let us ask, if we don't, what it is that's killing that. And then, Father, let us ask if we are in any way trying to earn merit with you, earn favor from you by doing things, even perhaps by doing this act of the Lord's Supper. And let us turn from that sin, Father. Convict us of that. Let us look to Christ alone, who fulfilled all the law. And so whatever we do, may we do it unto Christ. May we do it to honor him. So Lord, I pray that this time now, this partaking of the bread and the, and the juice, would be an honoring time to you. And so we pray all this in the precious name of our Savior, our Emancipator, Jesus Christ. Amen.